for a year and a half. So I got so used to people calling me Avi that now I just tell even Israelis and Jewish people to call me Avi. It's just easier. Can you speak Mandarin or anything? No. No. I mean, I can say, give me one milk. Uh, milk. I know how to. Or I could I could say like really basic stuff, but unfortunately, yeah. uh, COVID came about before I could really get a hang of anything. I love I love learning languages. Uh, oh, guys, guys, uh, we're, guys, we're 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 live. Uh, there seems to be a lag, so we didn't know we're live. So our friends got to see our little small talk, which is a sign that we're all friends. But I'm it not. Wasn't, it wasn't a fake. When we're nice to each other, it's not contrived. It's exactly. Crazy. No. Not right. GMO organic. We're we're still gonna do the official intro. Hello, friends from around the world. Welcome to The Great Debate, where we have vibrant discussions on the most important issues of our time, but we do so in a way that's respectful and productive, not a debate where both sides try to defeat one another, rather where both sides work together to find common ground. That's what makes this debate great. Tonight, or today, or, to, or this morning, wherever in the world you are, we will be debating Trump versus Biden. The United States is more divided than it's been probably since the Civil War. We have massive protests across the country. There is rioting and looting. There are record-breaking wildfires, which seem to be connected to climate change. And we have over 200,000 deaths that seem to, that are related to COVID. Pe friendships are being ruined. People are losing jobs over their political opinions. Can we make it back from the brink? Well, today we're gonna, we're gonna have a rare spectacle. It's going to be a conversation on one of the most polarizing topics of our time, but in a way that's respectful. And I say this is a rare spectacle because we do not see this kind of discourse. But our hope with the great debate is that this, this discourse becomes unrare and it becomes common. That's what we're trying to achieve, not only on this channel, but in conversations all across the world the point of the great debate is to bring people together and be able to work out their differences in a respectful manner. That's what we're here to do. So welcome everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. And without further ado, I'm very happy to introduce my two guests. To my bottom left, Avichai Korn, who is a government graduate from the London School of Economics and Political Science. He's passionate about international relations, ethnic conflicts, human rights, and East Asian politics and society. Welcome, Avi. Thank you so much. And um, to my, I, real quick, yeah. I'm just going to, and to my bottom right, Garrett Lamaro, a third generation American who advocates for liberty, a strong private sector, and civil discourse. Can you tell from the intros who supports who? Perhaps. Uh, we're going to get started just by uh, giving each guest a little opportunity to share their political philosophy, where they're coming from. This way, this will give us a better insight as to, you know, just wh where they're coming from when we approach this sensitive topic. Um, Avi, the floor is yours. 
Well, um, I'm here in a lot, and the sun has just set here, which I hope is a good metaphor for the Trump presidency. Sorry, I hope I could kick it off with a joke. Um, at any rate, <laughs> um, and, and I wanted to say, as you were going through um, Garrett's views, that civil liberty and strong civil society and, and, and a strong uh, market economy are all um, values that I share with Garrett, and I hope that that can um, serve as a way of bridging some differences. I think that um, differences in opinion are what makes politics interesting and fun, and unfortunately now in America, extremely um, divisive. I don't expect to agree with everything or with most things about Garrett, but I've been talking to him for um, upwards of a week now in the preliminary discussions leading up to this debate, and I'm really looking forward to hearing what he thinks, to challenging him on views where we don't agree and on um, trying to enhance people's understandings of very important issues in what Adar has correctly characterized as very, very um, troubling times. I wanted also, before I begin, to really humbly thank Adar for organizing and hosting this. I've known you for years, um, and I can say that in addition to being a very warm and fair-minded person, you're committed to, through activism, to fostering a spirit of open, direct, and civil engagement with different groups in Israel and everywhere else. Um, your work has been a testament to the fact that you don't need to be an expert or an elite to have informed, respectful discussions about the issues that matter most. And I think most importantly, that decency, respect, and the ability to approach controversial matters open-mindedly is of crucial importance in today's contentious political um, landscape. And I'd also like to extend that thanks to Garrett, who, as I said, has been extremely um, friendly, warm, and um, considerate in the lead up to this debate. And I'm really looking forward to discussing where we disagree um, and where we might be able to find common ground, or at least to inform people better as they head into the polls in on November 3rd, or mail in their ballots remotely. Awesome. Great. Thank you. Um, before we give it over to Garrett, I just want to mention that there's like a technical glitch that you guys, the, the guest speakers will not be able to see people's comments, but there are people writing things. I will relay the questions to you. For some reason, that feed is not connected to our our backend software, just so you know. But uh, whoever's joining us, let us know where in the world you're joining us from. We normally have an international crowd, and I'd love to hear where you're joining in from. And feel free to engage in vibrant discussion and ask questions. Towards the end, we will get to um, viewer questions. So, uh, Garrett, all you. Yeah, thanks, Adar. And again, I want to thank you for having uh, us on to do this debate. I think it's extremely important for people to try to understand these topics from a very civilized, informative point of view. Right. As Avi said, obviously, I'm going to be supporting a Trump administration. He'll be supporting a Biden administration. So right there, we're not going to be seeing eye to eye. However, we can still see each other you know, in a way where we actually can understand where we're coming from and instead of attacking each other on a personal level or on some sort of tribal level, my team versus your team, we're just going to talk about the ideas themselves. So, uh, yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and I've really been uh, appreciative of our 
conversations that we've had in the lead up to this moment. And yeah, I look forward, look forward to getting great to have you both there. That's what makes this uh, debate great. And um, viewers, if if you like this, smash that like button. If you don't, give it a down down vote. We we support that too. We just want you to express yourself. Um, Garrett, do you want to explain a little bit about your political philosophy? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I'd say for the majority of my adulthood, going back to when I was uh, the age of 18, I've always kind of had like, we'll say some sort of like political interests or some sort of um, just, I don't know, just overall consciousness of it. Um, it's been a, it's been a weird, not weird, but it's been like a fun journey uh, back in 2008. First time I ever got the vote at the age of 18 was actually voted for Barack Obama. 2012, 2016, I voted for Gary Johnson. Um, philosophically, I would say I've always been attracted to candidates that wanted to be either about great change or people that maybe wanted to buck the system a little bit. Um, because based on what I've been able to see, especially in post-World War II America, it seems like status quo has kind of gotten lazy with a lot of the topics. And I think that's why a Trump a guy like Trump was actually able to get elected was because perhaps the tone deafness and the deafness that a lot of these establishment Washington DC candidates have, they're just not aware that like, yeah, there's actually issues that like affect the everyday person, whether it's in urban settings, rural settings, et cetera. Um, I would say for myself, philosophically, I would say I'm more socially conservative uh, with some libertarian kind of like leanings and you'll see that in this debate how that kind of framework uh kind of um i guess guides me on how i view uh the topics that we're going to get into today so yeah that, that's where i'd say i'm coming from philosophically great so let's get started i guess let's uh start with uh COVID-19, over 200,000 COVID-related deaths in the United States, leading the world both in cases and deaths. Uh, we'll start that we'll, we'll give it over to Avi. Avi, how do you think Trump has dealt with COVID-19? Um, I think that on, well, I, I wanna start, before I talk about what I think Trump has done wrong, I wanna talk about what um, a good response to COVID-19 looks like in order to give us a metric for the response that we've seen, for judging the response that we've seen. So I think that um, a good uh, response to the COVID pandemic would have been, would have consisted of two fundamental characteristics, neither of which, unfortunately, I feel um, we've seen with Trump. The first is communicating a clear, consistent message, which A, recognized the scope of the problem from the beginning or as close to the beginning as possible until now, um, I have not seen that, and I can get into extensive details on how I've not seen that. And the second would have been to do everything in his power to implement an effective policy to quell the number of deaths, which has certainly not happened. I don't think that when you talk about the number of, of deaths and the number of cases, I think that tells us something. But I don't think it tells us nearly as much as the death per million um, in which America is now ninth in, in the world in terms of severity. Um, there are... Uh, and and um, I, I, what I really want to do in this discussion, rather than simply say things are bad in America, I think that we can tie 
the, the degree of severity in America to specific things that Trump has done, which have led to this magnitude of death. So in short, my, my, my argument or my, my um, well, there's no better word for it. My argument in this, in this debate is two things. Number one, that on a communication level, on a level of leading the country, Trump has failed dramatically. And I'll get into exactly why and how. I mean, there are now recordings of him um, admitting that he knows the severity of the crisis and then spending two months downplaying it and even deceiving the public about it for, I would argue, no reason. And I'll get into that. Um, once I've let Garrett have his say, because I'm really interested to hear what he has to say. And the second thing was the fact that a lockdown wasn't implemented on a national level, which I think absolutely needed to happen. And I'll explain why that needed to happen and how it could have happened. Um, I'm also cognizant. I want to limit my arguments here um, and, and be reasonable because I'm not somebody who will point a finger at Trump and say he did every single thing wrong. Um, Trump was underinformed about the virus by China, which actively uh, concealed it. He was given inconsistent information by the WHO, and I'll get into the effects of that. And um, Trump also dealt with a challenge that he couldn't have in unilaterally implemented a lockdown on the country because the president of the United States, by most credible accounts, does not have the constitutional authority to do that. So I'm not blaming Trump for a failure to do things that he um, didn't have control of. What I do want to say is that the WHO gave the same information to the entire world and China gave the same information to the entire world. So these two things cannot independently or sufficiently account for why we are where we are. The second thing I want to say um, is that I didn't see Trump as a leader of the country make an appeal to state and local governments to do the shutdown or to the American people in February or March to to support a shutdown, which, by the way, the majority of Americans at the time supported and have supported for long periods throughout the lockdown. And uh, um, there have been long periods in which Trump did everything, in my opinion, from saying the lockdown would go down by itself. He said that there were only 15 cases, it would disappear, um, to advancing use of drugs that were either not helpful or even harmful as a treatment for COVID, um, to saying, oh, we don't want the cure to be worse than the disease. I'm at a loss to understand how we could have a cure that would that's worse than 200,000 people and counting um, dying, not to mention the national economy decimated. So in sum, I wanted to say that Trump has failed in both of the parameters I set out. The first parameter being communication, the second parameter being policy. And my ultimate argument throughout this first part of our debate is that just like a CEO, which leads a company to ruin in a preventable scenario, or just like an NFL coach that goes two and 14, or just like a general which loses a decisive battle in a war, Trump needs to be replaced for the good of the people who he is accountable, to whom he's accountable. Um, that's that's my, my take here. Thank you, Avi. Um, Garrett, the floor is yours. Yeah, so... Um I'm going to be coming at it from the perspective of kind of what Avi touched upon about things that I think get maybe mischaracterized, admitting obviously some of the um, charges he levied against a Trump administration and also looking at the differences because, again, this debate is about Trump versus Biden, not what I think should have happened or what Avi thinks should happen. But if Biden had been responsible, right? of something like of, of this magnitude, COVID-19, what would that look like? So 
we could just kind of open it up for general discussion. Avi, what is um what's something that you really want, I guess, bring up that you think is a point of contention against the Trump administration that we can well, kind of I think at this point, you brought up a lot, so I just want to like kind of go through. Yeah, it. yeah, I know I went on a lot. Um, I think at this point, let's start with um, on I believe it was February seventh. He gets up in this interview and says, "I know COVID is worse than the flu, worse than quote strenuous uh, strains of the flu." I'm not sure if that's an exact quote. But he said he's it's worse than the flu. We knew it was more deadly than the flu and more contagious. And he then he spent literally days after that, gets up in front of the American people and says, it's the flu. You know how many people die of the flu every year? Not only that, he gets up and says he wants the country open by by Easter when his health experts are t- predicting between 100 and 200,000 deaths. We've now had more than that. Um, now, I mean, he got up in front of the American people for, for, for the better part of two months before admitting that this thing was serious and misled them about the severity and the implications of the virus, told us that it would go away by a miracle, told us that the numbers would go down to zero. If from the point of view, you're not a, you're not part of the Trump administration, but if from the point of view of a Trump supporter, you can explain to me how that wasn't extremely harmful at a time when COVID was spreading its invisible fingers through the United States, I would be extremely appreciate, appreciative and, and enlightened to hear how that did anything other than compromise America's ability to handle this virus, to be honest. Yeah, sure. So I guess um, I can't obviously argue against uh, some of the missteps that he made in terms of uh, public communication. But that's, uh, do, do, do you do you agree with Avi that he he failed at how he communicated uh, the severity of the virus? Absolutely, because there's the reality of Look, I have so much data, and I'm sure Avi did it as well. That's why he touched on it at the beginning. When it came to making decisions and actions, yeah, he's doing a lot. But when it comes to how he's communicating it to the public, you can kind of tell it's where, and that's the one fatal flaw that he always has, is that he kind of gets his ego in in the way of just being able to kind of just be like, all right, well, like, here's what we're going to do. I think the problem with him is that he's always, and he's admitted in interviews, he's always trying to think positive. He's always trying to like, you know, things are just going to work out. Always trying to like think positive, think positive. And like, while I admire that, there's yeah, like, but, but, but there's when, when, so when you're on that, sorry. No, it's Wait, okay. Yeah, let, let Garrett finish and then I'll be, t- uh, all, I'm all so you. sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was sorry. just kind of saying that, again, since we're talking Trump versus Biden, right, or how, Again, it's like I'm going to look at this through a realism lens and I could easily turn the tables and go, okay, but if the Biden administration was in control or if Democrats were in control, like they didn't do it's not like they did this great job at being able to communicate about it. Or here back in February, Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, this is late February, by the way, this guy was the um, what was he was the most prominent member of. Vice President Joe Biden's Public Health Advisory Committee, and he mm-hmm. said, "Well, most people are thinking that there may be a bit of an overreaction by many, maybe even our own country." That was him. That was him being interviewed by Penn today, as he came back from his meeting with the World Health Organization. And there's so many times, and we can get into it. There's so many times where Joe Biden and Adam Schiff, Democrats in the House, 
are saying, oh, the travel ban, it's so xenophobic, it's so crazy. And it's like, so again, from the realism perspective, we're talking about Trump is in office, Biden, so what did people say? Again, Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York. New York, by the way, top five state in the entire country that was affected by COVID had so many deaths. Here he is in March. Oh, you know what? I think uh, I think we're doing a little bit of overreacting. So again, this isn't to love you. this isn't to try to deny that Trump didn't say stupid crap, but it's also the reality of like, okay, well, let's look at it realistically, not like uh, ideally. If Biden's in office, does he maybe he talks about it better? But what does he do that's better? Is what you know? That's where well, I would. Well, I think it's a bit. I, I yeah. think it's a bit. Um, dubious to ask what would he do he's not president so per definition he can't do very much um the thing i would say is this um even if i admit that people within the democratic party and it's an admission i can readily make um were late in spotting the virus i think what was far worse in the case of trump is how little he's learned and how obvious it is that he's learned nothing and i'll give you examples as late as may he was talking about it's talking about freeing all of these states which were opening um, in, in contradiction to health guidelines that the um, that the, the um, that his task force had put out. Um, he was talking about opening schools. I live in Israel. Opening schools is considered to be one of the determining factors which led to Israel being in such a crappy state. Originally, Israel was in a great situation with COVID. We were one of the safest and most effective countries in the world. And I don't think that opening schools was independently responsible. But I think that when you take Trump's um, uh, um, statements throughout May, throughout uh, all the way through July, and even now he wants to open up the NCAA, the entire thing is is quite absurd to me. And it shows, I, I think, if, if you want to make the argument that the Democrats weren't on top of this in the beginning, it's an acceptable, it's, it's an acceptable argument, although they certainly didn't go as far as Trump did in, in in denying it and calling it a hoax and, and other things. But the fact that he's still pushing for things to be open, the fact that like he pushed for university campuses to be open and university campuses promptly became a hotspot of the virus proves that what, like half a year over half a year into this thing, he's learned nothing about the severity of the virus. We, he, he, he pushed all of these states to open and we literally saw states, I have the, the graphs in front of me in Florida, in Texas, let me pull up the, uh, all over the country, Arkansas, um, all over the country, cases rising because Trump encouraged largely uh, um, um, governors to, to, to reopen. There's a reason why Republicans right now don't believe in wearing masks, which is clearly scientifically indicated to protect the virus. Why, why Republicans are skeptical about it at far higher rates than Democrats are. And it's because they've been consistently fed over, not over weeks, but over months. They've been consistently fed mixed messages, denialism, um, false promises. I, you, you, you talked about Trump being optimistic. Trump was on the Titanic, optimistic about icebergs. That's how I see his optimism. It wasn't, it's not optimistic to tell somebody you have you who are a cancer patient you don't have cancer we don't need to do anything about it that's not optimism that's called being delusional and i'm not denying the fact that democrats could have been more on top of it but we're in we're in 
August made. We're not in, we're not five months ago and he still hasn't learned. Yeah. Uh, let, let me, let me just give a little summation of, of where we're at. So, um, but th there's an agreement here. Uh, there's an agreement that Trump's messaging has been completely off. Didn't has not given the American people um, a realistic understanding of the severity of the virus or precautions they can and should take in order to keep the death rate low. There's also an agreement that Democrats also, at least initially, were slow to, slow to act. They also tried to minimize the severity of the virus. Well, some Democrats. Well, not, Democrats when it comes to yeah. Biden, so many times where he was against every travel ban. So if we're gonna if we're gonna keep talking about how, because again, we can we can pinpoint or we can talk about every single stupid thing Trump said. I can't sit here and just well, kind of defend everything he said. I'm I'm gonna talk about policy wise. What has he done? Right again. I know messaging is not, obviously it's not positive it's like so many people say to trump do who are supporters just shut up just stop just shut up and and i'm going to challenge avi i don't think that you can just say oh well because trump's had this mixed messaging for months therefore republicans i think we can agree we can't we can't really determine at what percentage right when he brings up about republicans being against the mask wearing I think it's kind of if you understand where the average Republican's coming from versus the average Democrat, your average Republican is going to be more in line with like a "don't tread on me" perspective. So I don't know to what percent you could just say like, "Oh well, you know, Republicans at this X percentage are opposed to mask wearing, and therefore it's Trump." It's like I think these people, regardless if it was Trump, an overwhelming majority. Well, well, one minute, I want to I want to respond to that. Are against the state imposing on what they determine their civil liberties, which is why you just saw a federal judge just take the um, governor of Pennsylvania, Governor Wolf, and say that like his shutdowns were uncomfortable. It's just it's just like a different frame of mind. How I think someone who's more conservative, someone who's more liberal, would see this whole issue itself. You know, first of all, I, 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 I want. Oh, I'm sorry. Not, one, one, one at a time, guys. Get Garrett. Yeah, I was interrupting. Please finish and let me apologize. Uh, um, well, first of all, I, I really strongly identify with the mentality of "don't tread on me." Um, I think, by the way, the, the thing I really disagree with you is that Republicans are tread on me. Everybody is "don't tread on me" when they feel like somebody is treading on them. Um, if you understand what I'm saying. So I and um, and and I. I know. I just interject. The government kind of like what what government kind of uh, will say intervention will say. That's what I meant when I said that. Don't tread on me. That like classical liberal libertarian kind of mindset that I think you find more prevalent in like. I yeah. I have a great respect for libertarianism in certain situations. In sure. situations of what people should teach their child children. Um, in, in situations of, of personal privacy, I do. But in situations of national emergency, I think, and I say this very bluntly but respectfully, I think we have to take libertarianism and throw it out the window. When you're dealing with, and I'll explain why, and, and state rights are something that I value, but I think that in a, in a pandemic, state rights had to be um, superseded by national need. When the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, um, 
we, we didn't get up and say, oh, this is a state's issue. We don't want the federal government to tread on you. We started drafting people into the national military to defend their country. When Al-Qaeda flew planes into the World Trade Center, we didn't say, oh, it's a state issue. It happened in New York. Why should somebody from Vermont be be affected by this. What we said was our nation is threatened by something and we need a national response. And when it was COVID, I, I, I have to be very direct here and say COVID does not respect state boundaries. It does not respect political uh, uh, ideologies. We needed a national response. And yes, if there had been a Democrat in office, the response might have been slow and that's that, that sloth might have cost lives. But when we're, when we're in July and we have a president who's calling to NCAA football, that's like what's at stake in a country where 200,000 people are dying, in a country where MLB games are being canceled because entire teams or large parts of teams are being, are being um, um, diagnosed with COVID. How is this what you're still pushing for? How, I'm sorry to get, a, to get uh, emotional about it, but how... How is the message so, not, not transition to things that are more important than whether the Florida Gators are going to be able to play Alabama or I don't know what? I don't understand this at this point, and I think it's a mark of continuous um, incompetence. Not knowing is bad when you're a leader. Not learning is far, far worse. And what Trump has honestly showed me, maybe not you and maybe not the millions and millions of people who I'm sure are intelligent, respectable people who are voting for him. But what he's shown me is not only did he not know, but he never learned and hasn't learned on the job. Uh, Avi, can I, I, I actually have a quick question for both of you. Just, I, I think it'll give us more clarity. So on, on the issue of, of not wearing masks and, and questioning the official narrative, I, I want to put this out there because I actually think we, we need to be more understanding towards those who are questioning the official narrative, because given the circumstance, um, the, the our complete lack of trust in institutions and and how greatly America has failed its people when it comes to public health, I think it's actually legitimate to question the official narrative. It, if you know, if we look at some numbers, it's something like 60 percent of Americans are overweight. 60 something percent take prescription medication. And a lot of this has to do because of pharmaceutical industries and just other marketers who are pushing their substances on the American people. Um, in addition to that, you know, governments have a very long history of seizing control and more power when they have the opportunity to. And the mainstream media fans the flames of fears every single opportunity they get. They, they are the epitome of the boy who cried wolf. I mean, they have a business model to get people to sit and watch TV. That's what they want. What makes people sit and watch TV? Fear. So th there's literally a race to the bottom when it comes to the mainstream media. They're all trying to give the most dramatic and fearful stories in order to get people to watch. So, you know, g given all this, when, when you have uh, Americans becoming more aware of the problem in these institutions, I, I think it's we, we should be understandable where the questioning of the official narrative comes from. Again, I'm not making a, a defense for um, Trump's reaction compared to what Biden's reaction would have been. But I do want to put this out there because I think we need to be I think it's legitimate to question the official narrative. And I think if a government tells you you are not allowed to leave your home, 
they need to have good justification for it. It's not something that we should just accept. So I just want to put that out there. Well, you could, yeah. Um, should I, I've been talking a lot. Please let Garrett answer the question actually first, if you want yeah. to. I don't know if that was a question. I just kind of wanted to put that out there. Yeah. Um, like I get what you're saying and that's, that's a good thing to bring up in terms of understanding why people might feel and think the way that they do, but this is maybe where Avi and I will probably have alignment. When it comes to matters of this magnitude, though, you kind of, you know, you have to kind of, if, if you really, if you want to be an independent skeptic, or you want to be a critic, well, then just do the research. And when you see the research, like, obviously, this is a, this isn't just like, um, you know, they have weapons of mass destruction, therefore let's go into Iraq. This is more like, this is clearly, this isn't just like a uh, media kind of narrative. Now, can the media, can the media sometimes be complicit in narrative? Sure. Like Dr. Fauci admitted that they told people deliberately not to wear masks in the early onset because they were worried that they weren't going to have the supply for it as well. Same thing with the Surgeon General Jerome Adams back in early March said people stop wearing masks. So it's just, you know, it's, it, it's it's understandable, but this is one of those topics where you kind of just have to go with like, all right, well, what does the evidence show me? You know, you can't really just be like, well, these are my personal attachment views and beliefs. And, and yeah, sure, well, the 24-7 mainstream uh, media cycle have like a psychological effect on somebody that might cause them to be more fear and based. And could that even potentially cause psychogenic uh, effects. Yeah, of course. I mean, there was a, a study that was done by the, I think it was the Department of Homeland Security back in 2005 that demonstrated that when people were in areas of of conflict, that just the constant fear of a terrorist attack could cause psychogenic effects that they themselves would then have to internalize. So yeah, can the media either intentionally, I, I can't prove that, or unintentionally cause that? Sure, but I just think this is one of those topics where, like, you have to, even if you even if you see that happening, you still have to be able to parcel through it and and just stick to like the facts of the matter, you know, not like what Rachel Maddow or or Sean Hannity are saying. Well, and also, um, I see, you know, I think about how I was thinking today in the prep for this debate about how different leaders handle moments which are terrifying, nine eleven or um, Winston Churchill getting up before the British people when they were attacked by the, um, the Nazis, uh, when, you know, in 1940, when, when Britain faced a war where its survival was threatened. I mean, the Nazis could have, uh, had they taken the manpower that they, they spent attacking the Soviet Union and invested it into attacking the, the British Isles, they would certainly have crushed um, Great Britain. But regardless, I think about how leaders face times, moments of challenge. Abraham Lincoln facing the American people and telling him, we need to go into the fight of our lives to save our union. George W. Bush on September 11th, um, I thought his policies in the aftermath were, were a big problem, but I thought that his response to the attack when he got up and told the American people, yes, what happened to us was objectively terrifying, but we are going to get together and get through this. That's what leadership is. Leadership isn't lying to people uh, about the severity of what's where COVID is spreading in the eyes and telling it COVID isn't um, a risk. 
It's telling the people COVID is a risk and we're going to get through this together. We're going to get through this Democrats and Republicans, something that I've again, never heard the president say, although I don't listen to every word he says. I haven't heard him say anything even in the spirit of that. Um, when getting up and saying, this is, these are objectively terrible times, looking somebody in the eye who has cancer and saying, you have cancer, but we're going to do everything we can to fight for your life. I want to hear something like that, not a president who gets up and says, we take no responsibility for what's going on. Uh, 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 the difference between a good leader and a bad leader. And I'm not saying Biden is a great leader, but I am saying Trump is a terrible leader and COVID proved that. The difference between a good leader and a bad leader is a bad leader tries to figure out how they're not responsible. A good leader tries to figure out that they, how they can be responsible, how they can prevent things. They don't say, oh, it is what it is, direct quote, when asked why so many Americans have died. To me, that's just a failure on every level. And it's not a rhetorical failure. It's a failure that went hand in hand. One of my favorite, I'm going to say one one more thing. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is a story about um, Abraham and Sodom, um, where God is getting ready to obliterate the city. And Abraham is standing in front of the city, pleading with God, who is God, who objective is omnipotent and omniscient, and saying, Let's do everything we can to save one person, to do one thing, trying to grasp the value of human life and to preserve human life in every way that's possible, even in a situation where objectively he could do nothing. That is leadership. That is taking a stand for something. And I've not seen that from anybody in the Trump administration. You know, the thing I wanted to say, one more thing I wanted to say to you, Adar, is that you talk about power being abused. Trump could not have implemented a lockdown. He didn't have the power to do that by the Constitution. He has a lot of influence in the Democratic Party, and we've seen that. But he never, show me one time when Trump called governors on the phone and begged them to implement the, the lockdowns that were necessary to save American lives. Fine. Democrats were clueless. You're going to tell me they were clueless in January, February. Did he do it in March? Did he do it in April? Did he do it in May, June, July? No, he pushed the country to be reopened. And that was a failure. He did not do the very basic. He did not stand. Americans were going to die. But he didn't stand there as a leader did and say, let's do what we can. He said it was the Chinese. I wanted to say one more thing to you, Garrett, regarding um, the lockdown which I think was justified. Now, objectively, the lockdown on China was not sufficient for two reasons. And I'm just pointing this out as a matter of policy. Number one, because I believe 40,000 Chinese citizens came into, the country, uh, came into the U.S. after the lockdown, oftentimes with little to no um, checkups. But the other reason is because a lot of the cases came from Europe, which he only closed down in mid-March. Now, Maybe Democrats overreacted to the lockdown. I mean, this is a president who's, after Puerto Rico got flattened by a hurricane, the first words out of his mouth were they owe us money. I don't know if that's racist, but that's definitely a bit odd. I don't think he would have done that had like this happened where, you know, like in, in Maryland or in, 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 in Massachusetts. But so this is, but regardless, there was also behind the China lockdown, which I thought was justified and I think is justified, were two failures. The first failure, as I mentioned, was that he didn't lock down Europe until it was far too late, and he didn't restrict travel from other places in the U.S. until it was far too late. 
Um, the second thing was a rhetorical way in which he tried to push blame for the virus and responsibility for the virus entirely on China. And that's just ridiculous to me because the entire world dealt with Chinese miscommunication and with WHO, whatever it was that they did, miscommunication, lack of sufficient communication, the entire world dealt with that. Why are we so much worse off than countries that, that, that went into lockdown before us? We had more time to think about these things and we did it under Trump's administration. And as I've spent already, I think 20 minutes trying to repeating like a mantra, he hasn't learned, he hasn't figured it out. And for that reason, just like any CEO on his world famous apprentice game show, I think it's time to look him in the eyes and say, you're fired. Thank you very much. Go back to doing whatever you were doing before. We need people who, if they weren't ideal in how they handled the virus, at least learned from the mistakes. That in a comparative of who's better, late or never, I'll pick late any day. So, Gary, th thank you, Abby. Gary, before you go, I just want to ask some questions just to, to kind of clarify, you know, where, where we all stand. Um, you know, Abby's attacking this from, from two, two angles. He's saying um, Trump's messaging has been all over the place didn't give people an understanding of what they need to do. And two, his actual policy, not his, his language, his policy was wrong because we didn't lock down fast enough. Um, you've acknowledged that Trump on the messaging doesn't do a good job. Do you think lockdown is the right approach to COVID-19? Is that directed to me or? Yeah, 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 that's yeah. Cause uh, I, I, well, I strongly support right now. It's with Avi though. It's like, again, I've tried to prepare for this debate in this conversation, not like what I think. It's a matter of like what can really happen, what's pragmatic, you know, policy. Like, could we do a lockdown? Could that work? Yeah, sure. But like he said, the, you can't unilaterally, Trump alone can't just unilaterally impose a lockdown. Could he have maybe tried to do better messaging with talking to some of the governors about, you know, what we should do or some of the organizations, private? Yeah. Sure, but this it's not so Garrett, yeah, it, it, do a lockdown, but I can't enforce a lockdown in this situation. Uh, Avi, hold hold on real quick. He froze on my end. I don't know if you Yeah, uh, Avi, you're frozen. Um I, I just have another follow up, Garrett. So I'm frozen? No, no, you're no. back. You're back now. Can anybody hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah you're, you're back, you're back. Garrett, would you say it's fair to to conclude that it's not that you think Trump has has dealt with COVID so well, but there's no evidence that Biden would do a better job. And given there's no evidence that Biden would do a better job and because you align with Trump more so on other issues, you're willing to give him a pass on this. It's like a wash of sorts. It, would, would you say that's your position? A little bit, but I would say um, policy, I don't agree 100% that he's done such a terrible job. People have to remember, like Avi pointed out, that, you know, I can go through all the timeline because the beginning, like like Avi said, obviously what you do once it's here obviously matters, but like the beginning is also super important. So you have like the CDC in, you know, late January saying that it had been uh, preparing for weeks for the potential entrance of the coronavirus in the United States, spent about $80 billion on a national biological defense. Um, Trump, even in late January, said we are in very close communication with China. 
concerning the virus. Very few cases reported in the U.S., but strongly on watch. He even offered China help. China refused that help. Um, you have a quote, Senator Tom Cotton, who was actually the first person who openly called for the tri Ch China travel ban. And again, this is Trump versus Biden, not like what Avi or Garrett or Dar think, Trump versus Biden. They opposed every travel ban early on. And you have multiple quotes from Dr. Fauci said that the travel ban and other experts absolutely saved lives. And so you have in late February, Senator Tom Cotton said, every conversation he's had with President Trump for the last month has been involved to stop the spread of the coronavirus. I could keep going on with quotes and different policy thing. I just, I just think it's unfair when I, I get the messaging part that's Maybe. bad when it comes to like policy. Like remember, it was March 11th when it was when the World Health wow, World Health Organization finally declared it being a global pandemic. Right. Two days later, that's when Trump decided to enact the uh, task force. You have to also remember that it was February 26th. That was the first time that the CDC had officially actually uh, given a case for COVID. It was the next day that the task force got initiated. So and it's like, again, when Avi was re referring to earlier about, oh, Trump, you know, he's downplaying it. Quote right here, September 9th, Dr. Fauci defends Donald Trump from claims that he lied about the coronavirus, saying, I don't recall anything that was a gross distortion of things that I spoke to him about. Before I hand it back over to Avi, because, uh, you know, Avi's done a lot of a lot of stuff. Here's here's he said March. Here's in March, New York, again, one of the worst states who got affected. He said, praise President Trump's New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, praise President Trump's response effort to the coronavirus pandemic in New York, saying his team was on it and that he was doing the right thing. He also called for Americans to put politics aside. And one more good quote, again, that kind of goes to the defense here about uh, actions over, that's where I come from. I, I don't listen to people's words, whether it's good or bad. Actions are always how I judge a person. Uh, he was interviewed on a Fox News channel with Mark Levin. You've been doing, this is Mark Levin, you've been doing this a long time. Have you ever seen this big of a coordinated response by administration to such a threat, a health threat, Dr. Anthony Fauci. We've never had a threat like this. And the coordinated response has been, there are many number of adjectives that to describe it. Impressive, I think is one of them. So, you know, I, I'm not gonna like, just totally concede to that, like, oh, cause Trump said bad things. It's like, yeah, but if we're just gonna pretend that like he has done nothing that's positive or that he, that he hasn't done things that are positive. And again, because of the fact that we don't have a national nationalized healthcare uh, system. That's obviously, regardless of, of who's president, that's going to have an effect on this. Because as Adar pointed out, when it comes to uh, the health, right, the 94% of those who died with COVID died with one or more comorbidities. And those two highest ones were diabetes, hypertension. Well, gee, I wonder where the United States ranks in the world. Let's see. For diabetes prevalence, the International Diabetes Foundation released that the World's uh, Diabetes Congress in Vancouver reveals that unsurprisingly, the United States has the highest prevalence of the population aged 20 to 79 of diabetes amongst developed nations. How about for obesity? Where's the United States rank? Number one. How about hypertension? Where does the United States rank? Number two. So I think that's where I'm coming from is the realism. We can have all these, you know, Trump said this, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm looking at more like, I think, 
while he said a lot of things that were incorrect, to deny that he hasn't done proper policy, I mean, I don't think that's well. Well, I'm not. I'm not denying. Biden was president. Tell me, in actuality, what would have been like? Yeah, he would have spoke about it better. One minute. One minute. One minute. First of all, first of all. I, I can't yeah, it's important to remember that this isn't like us sitting in the room. So the it could only project one audio at a time. So when two people are speaking at once, the viewers can't understand anything. So please, please be, be aware of that. Um, just to finish up what Garrett said, he asked, he asked what Biden, uh, what you think Biden would have done better? Well, first of all, I don't think that it's possible to prove a counterfactual. You could tell me like, oh, well, what if, you know, John McCain or Barack Obama reason what, I can't reasonably tell you what, what people who were not in the office could have done. I, I think that's an unreasonable request to make of anybody in any debate because it would be speculative, you know. Um, what, what I can do Yeah, get, guys, one, one at a time, one at a time. Yeah, you, you did say a lot, and you said a few things that I agreed with and a few things that I didn't agree with. So I want to kind of, um, I kind of want to address what you were saying um, on a point-by-point -point basis and tell me if I didn't um if i'm neglecting anything so good points trump. you made which i can definitely say i agree with and which i can definitely say that trump is in no way responsible for obesity di diabetes risk factors definitely affected the number of people who died in the united states no doubt about it i'm not looking at trump and going, why do so many people in the united states have diabetes etc cetera, etc cetera. um what um you know the, the, and, and i'm not denying that trump did everything right what I have said and what I've continued to say, I see, I can't imagine any president honestly um, being obtuse enough to suggest reopening states under the conditions that Trump did. So I'm not comparing Trump to Biden because um, Biden's never been president. I'm comparing Trump to a competent president of reasonable intelligence with good information, which I do not think Trump is. And what I could say is, that at the point at which a virus has been raging in the country and at the point at which health experts are saying we are not ready to reopen, at the point at which uh, um, um, states are opening in, in contradiction to guidelines which your task force has set out and you're encouraging them to do it, you are incompetent. Very simple. And you know what? I'm not 100% sure that, Trump, that Biden would have done a good or perfect job. I feel, based on what I've said, I hope I've made this case compellingly that he would have done better than Trump, because as I said, late is better than never. However, what I am sure about is that we wouldn't have seen that, that, that when a president fails as profoundly as Trump has um, and continues to fail and continues to not learn and continues to, re -push, re to push reopening, I just want to point out that until a miracle virus, which apparently a third of Americans won't, a uh, miracle vaccine, which apparently a third of Americans won't even take, no, um, nobody in America can even give me a plausible or anywhere else can even give me a plausible narrative for how America is going to get out of this until mid-2021, where cases in Germany, the UK, 
France, Italy have all gone down. You're still in, America is still in its first wave of the virus. And I think that speaks paragraphs and pages and volumes about the incompetence here. I think that even if I can't prove to you that Biden would have done a great job or even a good job in the virus, there's a message that's sent to people, to the American people and to the world when somebody fails and we remove them from office and replace them with somebody who by any comparative would do a better job. Maybe not a great job, but a better job. Biden was not my first choice or my second choice. But when it's him or Trump, and Trump has failed this nation so profoundly, and we're looking at 200,000 deaths, and we're talking about the you know NCAA Big Ten football, I have a problem. And I think that problem can be solved in on November 3rd and with by removing this person from office. I hope I made that um, extremely clear. Now, I want to point out one more thing, um, which is we've talked about communication. I think that's something that both sides of the debate and probably Adar agree has been insufficient. The communication was a problem. But I want to point out to you how much of COVID response is dependent on communication, because everything that we do to mitigate Um, Most of what we do to mitigate COVID is based on voluntary citizen action. We can't watch everybody all the time. So at the point at which I think we've seen how lock and vote get up and critically every day like a normal president would wear your damn masks. You know what? Make masks that say make America great again. If you want to, I'm sure every Republican would have done it. I'm sure if Donald Trump would have come out and at the point at which it was obviously clear that wearing masks were a good idea and had little MAGA face masks, people, Republicans would have started wearing them. And not only that, would have started telling people who aren't wearing them, you're unpatriotic. I, and, 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 that, and I'm not saying that I'm not in favor of pointing fingers at people and calling them unpatriotic or traitors to the country, but under the circumstances, there could have been worse things. What I'm talking to you about here, and where I think Biden would be better than Trump, where I think anybody with common sense would have been better than Trump, is the ability to learn. I can't honestly tell you that under democratic leadership, I mean, we see that, for example, Barack Obama had a whole corona, had a whole pandemic playbook, which outlined step by step who to call in other countries, what to do, and at what stages to implement which policies. I think that we can pretty qualitatively say and put together a permanent passport, which Trump later disbanded. I think we can pretty objectively say that somebody like Barack Obama would have been better than somebody like Donald Trump. But I think between that, we can also pretty objectively say that somebody who's not a complete um, um, narcissist and a complete rejectionist of science, as Trump has repeatedly shown himself to be, would have been better than Trump. I think those are not necessarily assumptions, not necessarily prescriptive statements that I can make, but I think that those are reasonable assumptions. I think that we can reasonably say Biden would have done better. I think we can reasonably say that Biden would have been would have made mistakes, but he would have learned from those mistakes. I think we can reasonably say that Biden represents a party that throughout the pandemic has listened more to science and less to things like, oh, hydroxychloroquine. And I think that on the basis of all of those things, Trump simply would have been a better man for this moment than Trump. Not maybe a great president, not, not a good leader, but certainly by comparative standards, a better leader. That's all. Uh, um, Avi, I'm good. Right. Um, Garrett, can I respond? I feel like.
Yeah, yeah, Bye. give me real quick. It's getting a little bit choppy. I don't know if that's all of us or Avi on your end. It's a little bit choppy. Maybe we can move a little closer to the router. Um, Garrett, I'm going to give you the final yeah, I'm going to move inside. Yeah, 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 do that. Um, Avi, um, Garrett, I'm going to give you the final word on this before we move over to, to the issue of climate change. I, I do want to uh, share an observation. So, you know, Avi, I agree with you that it's possible because of Trump's poor messaging that that many Republicans aren't wearing masks or won't take the vaccine. But I, I actually think that there's a dissonance between what Trump's saying and what many Republicans believe. So I'm not sure that all responsibility can be put on him. I'm actually confident we can't put all responsibility on him because it seems like there's a growing denialism on the American right that is unrelated to Trump. Uh, oh. And, you know, he, here, here's a great example. You so said, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, so, so we agree. Here. I just want to put out because it's an interesting observation. So a third of, of Republicans you said won't won't take the vaccine. What's interesting is if tr Trump's solution, his solution is a massive vaccine rollout. But if you listen to, to people like QAnon who love Trump, they think Trump's the savior of sorts. They view COVID as a hoax and, and vaccines is just a ploy to put microchips in people. Right. This is this is an actual growing narrative or or a more moderate version of that narrative is it's just a ploy by the pharmaceutical companies to force everybody to need a vaccine. Trump is saying he's rolling out a massive vaccine program and many Republicans who support Trump are still anti-vax and they they have some there's some dissonance there because in order for them to justify what Trump's saying either they just ignore Trump saying he's rolling out a massive uh, vaccine program or they have some like mental gymnastics to say yeah he's just playing a 4D chess and he's not really going to roll it out right but it's just important to put out there that there's something brewing on the American right don't get me wrong. There's a lot brewing on the American left too that we, that we can get into, but I don't know if we'll have time today. But there's something brewing on the American right that is beyond ev even Trump, and and I think that's important to, to put out there. Well, one minute. Can I can I respond to that because I think it's an excellent point. Yeah, um, yeah. Just keep it brief, and then we're going to give Garrett the final word on okay. this. And two points about this. First of all, um, I I'm, I want to make it unequivocally clear, unambiguously clear that. And no point in this discussion do I blame Trump for every wrong that's come about as a result of COVID. Um, racial divisions didn't begin with Trump. COVID didn't begin with Trump. Doubting science didn't begin with Trump. But when your response, but but I think when it comes to climate change, which we'll talk about in a minute, and when we, when it comes to um, um, what's it called, um, COVID as well, Trump's attitude is science when it's good for me. And if you're asking me whether in the context of a pandemic, which has ravaged the American people, this has helped America or harmed America, whether this has taken the existing problem and made it better or worse, I don't think that anybody in this room can reasonably argue to me that it's done anything other than exacerbate the issue. Okay. Yeah, so uh, I wanted to ask Avi what matters more, because I guess I, this is just my personal, my personality getting into it. Like what matters more messaging or just facts, data, you know, because again, how I came into this is like, yeah, messaging, can't argue that. But again, since we're talking about Trump, Biden, 
I can't, I don't see why, because maybe Biden before the public would be better at talking about it. I think what people, this is me personally, because we, it seems like we're going back and forth on what we care about messaging or the numbers. For me, it's just the numbers. You know, you could go up every day and say all the wrong things, but if our numbers, right, if our numbers weren't where they were, people, you know, the messaging would just be like a political kind of like, you know, torch to throw at them, but they wouldn't care as much of it. For me, I've just been focused on the numbers and I don't see where numbers wise, anything that Biden, a Biden administration would have done better. We, I, we didn't have enough time. We could have gotten to so many things that like, like Adar brought up. You, first off, Adar, I think he said one out of every three Americans are not going to take the vaccine. I don't okay. think he said one out of three Republicans. Avi, you can correct me if I misheard you. I honestly I don't know, but I'd love I think it's an American thing. I don't think that's like a, it's a Republican. I just think Americans are just skeptical, like especially with the vaccine. They, I heard so many people in just private conversation like, oh, well, I'll wait for others to take the first trial or the first round and then right. see after that. Look at Dar touched on it all the way back in, what was it, June? June of this uh, year, he directed the HHS to initiate Operation Warp Speed, aims to deliver 300 million doses of a safe, effective vaccine for COVID-19 by January 2021 uh, as part of a bolder, broader strategy to accelerate the development, manufacturing, distrib- distribution of COVID-19 vaccines, therapeutics, and diagnostics. Oh, I hope I now, I hope it works. I hope- I hope I'm not where you're make the argument is made about oh well if Biden was in office the numbers would have been we still wouldn't have had an absurd amount of cases we still wouldn't have had the deaths that we had and this is when I knew that was going to come up so I made sure to research it and if oh. I need to send you the uh, article on it I will it's a whole website dedicated there's actually studies with the hydroxychloroquine that actually prove if the FDA wasn't so adverse to it add. In early treatment, had we actually, that's something that I can point to as a positive for Trump. Everybody laughed at him and all, all these all these studies come out. So here's a little article and I'll just, I'll leave it at that. Many okay. countries either adopted or declined early treatment with HCQ, which is the abbreviation for hydroxychloroquine, effectively forming a large trial with 1.8 billion people in the treatment group, meaning those who actually, countries like India, Russia, other places around the world that allowed people to take hydroxychloroquine in the early, like in the first four days, that's what they mean by early treatment. And then 663 million in the control group, meaning those that in countries that weren't allowed it. As of September 20th, 2020, an average of 70.1 per million people in the treatment group have died, meaning those that were allowed early treatment access to hydroxychloroquine. And 447.2 per million in the control group. Essentially the treatment group has a 73.9% 73.9% lower death rate and confounding factors affect this estimate. We exam- And it says they examine diabetes, obesity, hypertension, life expectancy, population density, organization. I can link to that if you want, but that's like something that everyone thought that was such like, a oh, Trump's an idiot. Like he doesn't listen to science, but like right there is a classic example. Maybe if actually what Trump said was allowed to be, and there are states now, quietly actually admitting that they will allow that to happen. There's been at least seven states, which which the most recent. Um, that's uh, where it's like, you know, uh, that's, before, that's something that we can say Trump and Biden would have done differently and had Trump actually got to and have that be infected. Maybe the death rates actually would have been lower. And that's something that I know for a fact Biden 
would not have wanted to see. Avi, real quick, real quick. I do want to move to the next topic. So whatever your response is, make it brief and have it. You know, your position has been made very clear on this topic. So have your response be something that we ha we haven't heard yet. And, and okay. then we'll go. Well, um, I'm not a, I haven't read the study that you're reading. I would love to look at it um, so I can very objectively and fairly say I'm not in a statement to <laughs> debate the issues of that um, particular issue. I think that overall, most Americans feel, and I certainly feel, that there has been a certain randomness um, to Trump's statements, to his responses, a certain lack of coherence, um, a certain lack of clear messaging, which in the beginning of the debate, I said that I felt was a very clear um, uh, determinant of success or failure when so many things that people are doing um, depend on individual actions. So I think that your, 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 the, the, the article that you're showing me I can't debate that, but I can say that if he did say one thing that was correct, it was rather a case of the broken clock being right twice a day than of him having a coherent, scientifically grounded policy at any point over the last, since, since January. Um, and I really want to talk to you about this more. Um, I'm convinced that you're very informed, that you know a lot about things related to this that I don't know about. I hope I've made my views coherent, and um, I'm very happy to have heard yours as well this issue yeah uh if i'm to just summarize uh the the positions here avi you made it very clear that you're not sure what biden would have done and you're not sure he would have the best response but trump's response has been so poor that you can't imagine someone dealing with it worse and garrett you focus less uh, you you also acknowledge that trump's response hasn't been great Primarily in his messaging, when it comes to action, you think he has done a fairly good job, and you and and you don't have much reason to believe that Biden would do a better job. Yeah, like you said, when it comes to action, like, there's just so much. Like we can go through the timeline. Yeah. yeah. How much of it is narrative, and how much of it is what's actually right. Yeah. Well, we, we, we could follow up at a at a later date. You know, not all ground can get covered. You know, these are deeply complex issues, and, and often we, we need to sleep on we need to sleep on it and reflect before we can change our perspective. It's very hard to change your perspective in an instant. So, um, I, I hope this gave great food for thought for for all the viewers as well as ourselves. Uh, before we move on to the next topic, I just want to announce that the Great Debate opened a Discord server. If you don't know what that is, uh, you know you're you're in the norm most people don't know what it is it's a new form of messaging that's pretty cool there's different chat rooms where we could talk about the different topics it's open it's available to everyone i initially made it only for patreon supporters it's now available for everyone i'm going to share a link right now in the comments join the discord after this live discussion we are going to go into a video chat in discord now this video chat is for patrons only where we're gonna have a debriefing of this session and um, patron supporters are gonna be able to interact with their guests uh, directly. So just keep that in mind. If you're looking for the Patreon link, you can see that in the description of this uh, video. Also, if you wanna get in touch with Garrett and, Avi and Avichai, uh, their contact information is in the description as well. They're very happy to engage in dialogue uh, after the fact. And if you like this content, you're new to this page, subscribe, subscribe. We're doing it every week. Um, Next week, it's not it's not final yet, but I actually want to do a debate on 
Cuties, the new Netflix movie. Uh, you know, one person making the case that it's a legitimate movie, the other's making the case that it's unacceptable. If anybody watching this wants to take a stance, because I, I don't have debaters yet for this topic. I, this is my first time announcing it to the public. But if anyone's watching this and they want to make a case for or against Cuties, reach out to me and we'll see if we could, we could get you on. Now on the topic of climate change. Uh, Garrett. I'm yes. going to grab a bottle of water really quickly. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Go All ahead. Right. I am no, no problem. I, uh, this isn't a sprint. This isn't a sprint. This is a marathon. You know, I have to be ready. So, no, yeah. I, I, I just wish I w wish you did it while I was doing that little um, intermission because now I need to keep keep chatting until you get back. But it's okay. Oh, talk about. Anyway, so I just posted the Discord in the in the chat. Please join. It's free. And if you do want to join these private chats, uh, after every live, we're going to do a private video chat with patrons. Support on, on Patreon. It's um, minimum entry is $3. And, you know, essentially what Patreon does is it, it allows me to focus more time on content creation. I still have a day job, which I happen to like, but my passion I would is content and activism. And I'd love to do this full time if I can make enough money doing so. So you'd be supporting me and my amazing team that helps me with this. So, Avi, welcome back. L'chaim. 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 Let's, let's take, I'll, I'll take a sip of water before we touch on a very, very uh, important topic. Climate change. Garrett Lamaro. Where, yeah. do, you stand? Where do you stand on climate change? Uh, it's a real thing, and there needs to be actions taken um, from a private sector role and a public sector role. So that's why people might be like, oh, but Trump calls it a hoax from China, or Trump doesn't even... The other day, he was just at a meeting with those... Uh, he was in California, where he basically told them, like, yeah, don't worry, it's going to, you know, it's going to start cooling. So the argument that I have isn't necessarily that... Uh, Trump is like going to randomly become this like climate change president. The argument again, just like the last one is again, this is Trump versus Biden. And my, the concerns I have with the Biden administration is that, and some people who support a Biden administration might say, well, Hey, listen, at least they're going to do something about it. But it's like, could you just because you want to do something about it, like cause a lot of unintentional harm and even support policies that aren't even like scientifically sound anyway. So I'll just start by saying I'm fully aware that Trump is not someone in this regard that you can strongly defend. The only thing that I could find really was that he he signed uh, the uh, S.3508, uh, which is the Save Our Seas Act of 2018. And in his 2020 agenda, he wants to partner with other nations to clean up our planet's ocean. So outside of that, there's nothing that he can I can uh, argue in the affirmative. So what I'll be basically going over is since if Biden was at the helm, the, th made the three major points of contention, and I don't think they're minor. I think some people might just gloss over it because they're like, well, hey, he believes in science. He wants to do something about it. So at least Garrett, at least Garrett or at least Trump, he's willing to do something about it. But the three, and we'll unpack it, we'll go into it. The three ones that I want to talk about, Avi, I'll let Avi have the floor and filibuster on why Biden's better, et cetera. The three main points of contention I have is that these are based on 
either policies that President uh, Vice President Biden wants to initiate. One being he wants to do, in his words, he wants to do what the Obama administration did, which would be to try to allocate federal funds to green energy companies. And if we look at the track record on that, it's not like it was really great. So again, I'm going to take you at your word. And if you want to repeat what's happened in the past, I have to go off of what actually happened, not what you said you want to do. Again, I'm a, I'm a man of results, not of intention. He, off of his website, is a supporter of the Green New Deal, which is unscientific. And this is actually one of the few times where the right-wing talking point actually is true, that the Green New Deal is not really about environmentalism, and it's about restructuring the economy. Those are the words from the chief of staff at the time, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, an interview that she had with the Washington Post. I can pull that up if you need me to. And then also the flaws with the Paris Climate Agreement as well. well. Nothing scientifically sound there and could lead to a lot of unintentional harm in the in the battle against, you know, the, the climate. So, yeah, go ahead. That's where I'll be. Wait, I'll, get, uh, I'll be real, real quick, Gary. Gary, can you can you explain uh, what you mean by unintentional harm that, that can that can happen? Oh, well, if you want to talk for which uh, when I brought up Paris. Well, you just said that there's certain poli- there, there's certain state policies that they are trying to implement that um, may have unintended harm. So I'm just I'm, I'm wondering what what some All of that. Right, sure, I'll go with Paris. So I'll go with the Paris Climate Agreement. So I'm sure Avi is aware of it. I'm sure a lot of people that are, are well researched. There was nothing more than a dog and pony show. There was nothing in the Paris Climate Agreement. There was no language that actually uh, stated that any of these countries, I think 194 of them, that signed up for the agreement. Nothing that said that they had to act, that enforced them to actually meet what their pledge was. There were even nations that were saying, yeah, we're pa- Pakistan, for example, we're not going to be able to meet the goal of uh, limiting our peak carbon emissions by 2030. So really, it was just a, a gentleman's handshake. But so what I, I talked about this in our in our uh, chat before coming on here to Avi, what I'm worried about, this is where the libertarian in me comes out. What I'm worried about is, yep, yeah, we're going to. Again, this is where, as I said at the beginning, I, I'm skeptical sometimes of like these global initiatives of these like global government kind of policy agenda ideas. I look at, again, not just what's your intention, what's the reality, and I can only go off of what's actually happened in the past. So what I worry about, the unintentional harm we could create that I uh, alluded to in our conversation before getting on here would be, okay, so let's say Joe Biden becomes president and he re-enters us into the Paris Climate Agreement. And let's say they redraft the language where you actually have to, the countries that sign on to it, you can't just like tell us you're going to do it. There's going to be language in there that enforces you have to actually meet the guidelines that are specific to each region or to each country. So then, as we know, in reality, with how a lot of nations operate, the unintentional consequences I could see coming from it would be, what if there are nations that don't want, that either can't meet the quotas or just outright deliberately saying like, yeah, sure, sure, we'll sign on because we optically, we know we have to. But then what happens if nations continuously fail to meet the goals or just deliberately not do it? Are we going to now what? Are we going to have this kind of global, uh, almost like a NATO on steroids where we're just going to like put economic sanctions on these countries that don't want to do it because, you know, for the planet or or to go even down a darker path because we've seen it throughout at least the United States' 
all the way back to you know 40s 50s the coups that were involved in uh iraq all these different areas are we then just going to say and it's not like joe biden again we're talking about joe biden it's not like he's the he's a little bit of a hawk he might he might try to and it's politically convenient portray himself as a dove unfortunately but he's every time he's had this situation to vote he has shown himself to be right in line with the military industrial complex as people like to Good say night. How, how are we going to say that we won't then do a regime change war? Because it's like, well, you're refusing to go with the agreement. So therefore, that's like an act of war because, you know, the planet is what we're trying to save. And you're supposed to be helping us save the planet by you not going along with the agreement. It's like you're an enemy. To the, You get what I'm saying? Like, I'm not even yeah, saying yeah. that. Can, can, can I respond? That scares me a lot, for sure. Can I respond to a very long list? of very interesting and, and, and mostly, um, I would say, the, the, what, what you said are, you brought up a lot of interesting points that I think really valid ones, and I want to address them one by one, but there are so many of them that I'm worried yeah. that you're going to run away from me before I can remember everything that you said. Um, what I, I'm going to start by talking about what I see as a huge problem um, on the right right now, which is a denial of climate change. Um, you know, I see Tucker, Tucker Carlson, Tucker Carlson, um, you know, I see Ben Shapiro as well, who I certainly respect some of what he said on certain issues. But when he gets up, when I hear Ben Shapiro get up and say, oh, well, people affected by climate change are just going to move. If you look at what let's say large parts of Florida going underwater, New York, Hong Kong going underwater um, in the next 30 to 40 years, you understand that this isn't just a few people getting up and moving. Um, you know, I hear Tucker, Tucker Carlson um, in the midst of, of, of um, the, the wildfires, you know, peddling climate change denialism. I hear Donald Trump peddling climate change denialism. And, you know, I think what I'm seeing in the Republican Party now based on um, um, data, is that younger Republicans are starting to acknowledge that climate change is a problem, whereas um, more establishment people, the older people, certainly the president of the United States now, are very far behind them. And to be honest, that's not much different than what I see in the Repo Democratic Party, just much, much um, more severe. I don't think that anybody in the Democratic Party will get up and say um, that climate change is in a big deal. Um, what I want to impress upon you here is that when you have a president who denies climate change repeatedly, as Trump has, um, the president has a big platform and a big audience, particularly a president as charismatic and, and as capable of firing up his poor voter base as Trump. And I fear that what Trump is doing, um, and, and I don't think removing him from office is going to solve this, um, but, but what, what I fear Trump is doing is creating a generation of Republicans who at the time when we need to be doing the most are going to um, be throwing every wrench into our efforts now. And that's, that's why I, I think that having a person, having a president who occupies such a public position the way that a, Trump does, the way that any president does, who says that the biggest problem that our children and grandchildren are going to face is not alive. I see a lot of parallels between the anti-scientific approach within the Republican Party on COVID and climate change, and frankly, it terrifies me. Um, now, 
regarding Biden, I'm very happy that Adar and, and I'm happy that we chose climate change because it's a hard thing to defend Biden on. Um, and it puts me in a position as somebody who's going to vote for Biden of having to say, of having to really question um, what Biden will do, whether it will be sufficient. Um, and, and, and finding myself doubting that, I have to be honest. Again, it's comparative. Um, what I can say about Trump, about Biden, is a few things, um, where I, which I think differentiate himself and make him better than Trump. By the way, before I get into what's good about him, while I was doing research for this article, I found out that there are climate change deniers in Trump's, I think, as in economic advisory roles in, in the Biden, in the, the potential Biden cabinet. Um, and I found that extremely troubling. Now, what I find better is the fact that his voters, Biden's voters, some of them at least, a significant number of them, are telling him, listen, get rid of these people and make accepting climate change a precondition for being your advisor. I don't know if that'll happen. But what I do think is true is that Biden represents constituents who are far more likely to vote and support legislation, um, which, which is pro-climate change. I think that at a certain point, the fact that Biden has made promises and we can talk about the very interesting issues that you brought up with international relations in a moment. But I think that at a certain point, making promises to your constituents at least, it puts you in a better position or a, a less untrustworthy position, if you will, than somebody who openly says climate change is not a big deal and I'm going to do nothing about it. Not only do nothing about it. I mean, Trump has gotten up and said, I support coal. Coal isn't even economically efficient. Forget about, for, forget about uh, um, um, the environmental issues surrounding it. We need, at a time when the UK, which has built the biggest offshore um, um, windmill uh, um, system in the world, and the EU are moving dramatically to reduce carbon emissions, America is not taking a leading position in this at all. And you can argue with me that Biden wouldn't do a good job. I'm just saying give him a chance because he's better on this issue than somebody who openly denies it. And the day that and I want to add something else to this and say, and I agree with your skepticism about Biden 100 percent. The day that Biden becomes president, my social media is going to be lit up with Biden. What are you doing to save our grandchildren and us from climate change? Because I think you're right. There does need to be accountability um, on that issue. So in, in some, with regard to the Trump-Biden comparison, this is not something that I'm enthusiastically voting for Biden on that basis. I agree with you that there are severe reasons to be skeptical, but I think it's much worse than having a, pre a much better, or at least not as bad as having a president who time and time again communicates the issue, the, 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 the message to the American people that we can use this planet and, and the environment as like toilet paper, that we can withdraw from every commitment we've made, from every regulation we've committed ourselves to, to protecting national lands, and also to reducing carbon emissions, which I see at this point is crucial. Um, now, I want to jump forward to an interesting point that you made about the politics and geopolitics of climate change, which is that within the, 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 the world of carbon emitters, there are a few big ones. Two very worrying ones, okay? The first, uh, actually, I, I would say this. There are three categories of, of countries which worry me to various degrees. There are the mass, the, the, the mega emitters, which is China now, 
at the first place and the U.S. at the second place. Secondly, there are countries which are using too many carbon, using too much carbon. These are developed countries, mainly in Europe, which are working very rapidly um, to curb their carbon emissions. And the third, and I think this is the most concerning, are emerging economies like India and, and Southeast Asia, which are shooting up economically and as they are consuming more and more fossil fuels. So I think that that's my general analysis of what's happening. I think that the, the, the two major challenges facing the world are number one, reducing carbon emissions in China and in the United States, which are using far, far, far too much. And number two, as countries like India and, South, and countries in Southeast Asia and South America um, are emerging as economies, how to get these countries to become economically successful without emitting more and more fossil fuels. Um, and I think those are the challenges we're facing. And I think the, the question of how to do that is extremely important. Um, the last point I wanted to make before I give the floor back to Adar or to Garrett um, is that um, I don't see the US going to war and instilling regime change um, over climate change. In fact, I don't see the U.S. going into a regime change war for a very long time. You know, Trump is a hawk, at least in his rhetoric, but not even the Republican Party or the Democratic Party will get behind a war with Iran or with anywhere else in the Middle East. Americans simply have learned the lesson, in my opinion, um, of the lessons of Iraq. So I don't, I, I agree with you that we have to think about enforceability without human rights abuses, enforceability without colonialism and imperialism. I agree with you very strongly on that. What I'm not sure I agree with you as strongly about is whether America is going to go to war uh, with, I don't know, Brazil over its climate emissions. Um, so, or, or even enter a trade, I, I don't, I'm not sure about trade wars, that's more discussable, but certainly not on the man. I don't, I don't think that the problem is necessarily on the magnitude that you suggested that it might be. Although I think in principle, the question of enforceability and justice are very, very relevant. Thank you, Avi. Garrett, all you. Um, so then the questions that I would have if you're not even, uh, or if you're not in alignment with me, if we're going to listen to the science, right, we have 12 years to act. We need to 12 years to act in order for us to still be able to, you know, have the planet as it stands. We need to be able to reduce uh, the what, what was the goal of it? Uh, what was it? One is it 1.2 degrees Celsius or two degrees Celsius by 2050? So, like I said, if you enter an international agreement with all these nations and as you pointed out, rightfully so, I don't. I kind of laugh that like we're going to tell all these developing nations like, hey, the reason that we were able to get to where we were and to the level that we're at economically, we didn't care about carbon emissions and we just industrialized like crazy. But now all these developing nations and another factor, too, is how are we going to. This is I guess we're just getting more into the topic itself, which I know. Oh, no, no, no. I think it, can, I, can I respond to that? Yeah. Can I respond? Yeah. Yeah. So the problem would be if you look at like what the uh, the pragmatism of it is, if if the global population is soon to get to nine billion, but we're trying to just say, and again, this comes up. This is why I think 
Joe Biden's support in the Green New Deal, to me, scares me. I know it sounds maybe uh, ridiculous, but partially scares me more than just kind of the Trump approach, because the Green New Deal is trying to do stuff that you can't even do. Like by 2030, like there's no mention of nuclear power or other forms of it. It's like we're just going to go totally, you know, wind power. It's like it's not even pragmatic to do. And it just seems like there's just. Again, how do you scientifically, how do you have with the global population increasing at the rate that it is, how do you then sell poor developing countries like, hey, go ahead and do this, like, and for them to match the energy and jewels that they're going to need electrically to even like take on that kind of load demand? Can I respond? Can I respond to that? Yes. Um, And I'm going to try to speak more, you know, I'm going to try to make my responses shortly because I feel like at a certain level, what uh, we're, there's like a lot of ideas flying across. And so I want us both to have a chance to address point by point what each other are saying. So I think that there is a, a way that you can reach developing countries and reasonably get them to reduce power without being imperialist. I'm very happy. Um, and, and I think we're in complete agreement that that needs to be what we do. I think a good place to start is going to these governments and saying, listen, you're going to be the most affected by COVID. The global south, which is warmer and poorer and drier generally than, than, than let's say, Europe or North America, is going to be hugely affected by climate change. Israel is going to be hugely affected by climate change. This entire country could become a desert. I'm in a lot. You know what would happen to a lot if it was three degrees warmer every day? I'm about to drop dead as it is. I can't even go to the grocery store without drinking two liters of water. But Israel is in a developed country. My point is that countries like Thailand, India is going to get absolutely ravaged by climate change. It's just a question of how much. Countries in South America are all going to be really affected. That's the first thing. The second thing is that assuming that you advance technology and technology in, in, in energy is advancing pretty fast, there's no um, zero-sum game between economic development and sustainable energy. And I do think that what European countries can do and what American countries can do, instead of playing a blame game where it's like, oh, you can't do what we did, is go to these countries, frankly, and say, listen, let's talk about how we can invest in in sustainable power. Because I'll tell you something else. I've been to Bangkok. I've been to, to Thailand. I've been to China, to all of these countries which are heavily reliant, have large amounts of, of, have a large urban um, industrial complex and the air there is filthy and the air there is killing people. Nobody wants to live in this world. Um, the, the hygienic standards are, are, are awful. The, the, um, the, you know, gasoline is expensive compared to the sun. The sun is shining. You put the infrastructure in place and you maintain it. Wave energy, things like that. Uh, it's not a negative sum game. If you could give the average person in a country a car that's powered by the sun, of course they're going to take it, or that's powered by by sustain, uh, or, or or that's that's powered by um, sustainable energy. It's just much cheaper, as as a general rule. Because so, uh, what I I agree with you that it would be extremely cruel to go to countries which are already going to suffer hugely. Um, from industrial from from um, industrialization related global warming, and tell them, hey, stop, you know, stop your efforts to become rich. Um, where you know we did it, you can't. I agree with you. And what I'm telling you is that we don't have to play that blame game. We don't have to 
um, go down that road with them. We can help them create a future that's more carbon efficient if we have the political will. The other thing I wanted to say, and I'm sorry to bring Trump back into this, is that in a world where America has no commitments to anybody else and where it denies climate change and where the prevailing logic is America first, F the rest of you, I don't see any of this happening. I'm not sure I see it happening with Biden either, but I definitely see it happening more. I definitely see more of a possibility to reach this endpoint with a Democrat in the White House than with somebody whose attitude towards the world has generally been to treat it like toilet paper. That's all I want to say. I'm sorry to yeah, bring I, back really no, short. I, I want to just uh, bring up, you know, strengthen a point you made, Avi, because, you know, America has the biggest private sector in the entire world. And it seems like a good approach would be for the American government to subsidize clean energy and incentivize uh, the private sector to mass produce clean yeah. energy solutions and become the global exporter and provider of, of clean energy solutions. I think, uh, you know, America should step into that role and, and do that. Now, again, if we're talking about Trump, Trump or Biden, I don't think either will get us there. I don't think either have what it takes or, or even the, the good faith to, to get us there. Um, but, but, you know, Avi, as you said, you agree with that. You just think Biden's a little bit better than Trump in that in that regard. And uh, Garrett, I guess you, it, it almost seems like on this topic, we, we've come to agree that it's the lesser of two evils. It's just you guys don't agree on who the lesser evil is here, right? I guess it's like I, I'm looking at it like everything we're saying sounds good. But what's like really going to happen? You know, like you just brought up the point, maybe we should look to subsidize the private sector. Again, Obama administration did that with Biden. They did that 10 years ago. Some of it worked, but some of it didn't. So it's like, do you just say, well, hey, we tried, some of it worked. But I mean, you know, money does play a fact. Like, I get it. We're trying to protect the planet and we want to do what we can to keep a sustainable climate. But to just act like money doesn't matter at all, whether it's from a federal level or from a private individual and family level, that's where I think that's where some of it, like, it's more like I'm trying to say that while I can't like argue in the affirmative for Trump, I, I can point out a lot of flaws with like, let's say the Biden's uh, take on this, where I haven't really heard, like they sound good in theory, but in reality, I'm like, I just, I don't know. It sounds like you're, you're. it's more like we're inserting our optimism or, or hopefulness that, oh, it's going to work out as they said it's going to work out. Right. Well, well, I, I, I agree with both of you. And I don't, unfortunately, at this critical time, I can't say that I've been persuaded um, that Biden would be great or even adequate in this regard. What I'm looking at as, an, as a voter on a comparative level is who has a better chance to surprise me for the better? Um, you know, and in that case, I think it's Trump. Now, I think I, I wanted to address two points, two interesting points that Garrett just made. The first point was about industry and the second was about people and individuals. Um, I think we've seen in the last year, a, I've seen a, a, a change in the dialogue where businesses and even huge businesses are starting to realize that, listen, even from the point of view of business, 
we need to do something about climate change. Now, that's ugly and cynical that it takes thinking about your own bottom line to get you on board with things that are going to help the planet and save, in my opinion, in my view, millions of lives. But at the same time, the fact that it's happening is objectively good. The second thing that's happening um, in America and around the world is that people in developed countries um, are starting to live more and more with the consequences of climate change in the form of more severe hurricanes and the wildfires in California, which have been a, a particularly dramatic and, and hellish image of what the future can be. And I think people are waking up. And I think so. So I have to look at this situation and say, OK, well, which party in the American system? I'm a Democrat. I'm not an objective person. I'm a liberal Democrat who makes who tries to make good arguments for what I believe. But I also have to look at the situation and say, who, what, when increasing numbers of voters start looking at the government and saying, listen, you need to get us out of this mess before it swallows us alive, which is a party that's going to be the most more accountable or less accountable? And I have to say, no. The Democratic Party will not be perfect, but I do feel it would be better. I feel that the number of legislators and number of leaders within the Democratic Party um, who believe in climate change and its, and its severity are far higher than in the Republican Party. And what, we're, what we need is we need a consistent voice of voters getting up and putting pressure on these people to keep their promises and to make those promises a priority. And I think that that's markedly different than the Democratic Party, where Demo uh, than the Republican Party, where leading public intellectuals and the president of the United States repeatedly stand on a podium and say, we don't care. You can't reason with these people, even if you want to. I think that that's a clear difference. Politics is about making hard choices. But in this case, to me, the choice is extremely clear. Deal with people who have at least in principle agreed that the biggest threat to our planet is a problem and those who won't even listen to reason or science. Just as in COVID, I don't think that Democrats would have provided a perfect or ideal solution. I don't think they would have played a perfect game, maybe not even a good one, but they would have played a better one. And because they rhetorically take responsibility, if we put pressure on them, there's more of a chance in the comparative that they will do something about it. And for that reason, I have to try to put a party into power where more legislators believe that climate change is an issue and are willing to put uh, discuss solutions, rather than one where the head of the party and the head of the country, in fact, under that party's leadership is in denial. When I, when I, get on, when I turn on my TV and see Tucker, Tucker Carlson or Ben Shapiro, underplaying or flat out denying climate change or claiming it's a hoax. I'm terrified. We needed to be passed this 15 years ago. The fact that there is a major Republican uh, political party in the United States that isn't where the rest of the world is, because let's face it, climate isn't a debate in the UK or in Germany. Everybody knows it's happening there. Everybody listens to the scientists there. The fact that we have a party which seems to run the, co the country about half the time that doesn't believe that this is a problem and won't even engage with people in how to solve it is a, the biggest problem facing the world's number two carbon emitter right now. And for that reason, because I think that climate change is the biggest long-term threat to our sustainable uh, existence as a species, 
I'm going to continue voting a Republican by uh, de- uh, Republican Democrat by default until I see evidence that any Republican takes this, any Republican president takes it, even acknowledges the problem, even calls this cancer, which is going to eat our planet alive, what it is. Yeah, like I said, it, everything you said sounds great, but what I worry again, and you haven't addressed it, would be something like the Green New Deal being so strongly supported. If you were to take a policy like that and Im- actually implement it, not only does it not, it, you're not able to even achieve what you're what you're aiming to achieve for. It just seems like there's going to create a whole litany of of. Uh, Problems that I think get underplayed in this. Like, I get it. Like, better, can, you, can, you give me, can you give me specifics? Do you mind? Sure. So, from like the research I did, so the, the language pretty much says that they want 100% of the national power. Oh, you're lagging. I can't hear. I can't hear. Can you, can you guys hear me now? Can you guys hear me now? Can you hear me? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. The last thing I heard was that you said that a hundred. Wait, hold up. Abby, hold up. Hold up. Sorry. I, I, I muted you both just because it was my mic off. Were you guys able to hear me? It said your host mic was muted. It said that. Okay. Okay. Sorry, Garrett. I was, I was trying to, I was trying to intervene real quick. I feel like we're, I don't want us to get repetitive. So, you know, Gary, you've made it very clear that you, you just don't think the rhetoric of the Democratic Party will match re- the, the results that they're aiming to achieve. Yeah. I want to know what you think uh, a president should do to address climate change. I guess the more... Um, let me think about that really quick before I just give a pot shot answer. I guess you can do regulations, but they can be sensible and bound in science. And that's, I guess, what I worry about. You start, you're starting to see it's, it's funny how like a lot of times in these political debates, all the bad things attributed to the word are growing in this country are always on the right or the rights, you know, denial of science and this and that. And it's like, Okay, but who do you think is more likely to be in favor of like labeling of food with genetically modified products or like banning it from even being a thing? That's unscientific. There's no science that documents genetically modified foods are as harmful for you as, uh, you know, or or more harmful than would be organic. So what I'm getting at is that on the left or the democratic side, what I see is that they're allowing, it's like, everybody knows it. It's not that like every Democrat is in alignment with, let's say like an Ocasio-Cortez like personality, but they're seeming recently to have the loudest microphone and they're seeming to have the most kind of influence. I mean, let's be honest, if it wasn't for uh, her, do you think Joe Biden really says he wants to do a green new deal? Like, I don't think any of us here think Biden's going to be like, yeah, we're going to do a Green New Deal. But because they know there is a large support for it amongst, as we're talking about, the voter base. 
something like that kind of scares me because like I said, it doesn't, you're not even going to be able to achieve what you want to achieve. You're, you're, you're setting these ridiculous expectations in a really short timeline. And now you're trying to also econ like there again, really, I just want to point this out because I alluded to it before and then I'll let Avi have the floor. Here is, let me just pull it up. Sorry for the six minute watch. Uh, just making sure my mic is is working. Yeah, can I can hear everybody. Did anybody did anybody here watch around the horn on ESPN? Where they can just yeah. the host would just mute people. It would just yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah. Th this was my this was my first time muting people because I had to get to the bottom of of it to. Uh, to understand what was happening with my mind. Right. So, so the one thing I heard Garrett say, if I'm oh, not wrong. I just I found the thing I wanted yeah, to go for it, go for it. So here, again, this is back in July of 2019, and this is, again, where my fear comes from. This isn't me being a climate change denier. This is me being a fearful of pragmatism, realism. Saikot Chakrabarty, who was a lead role in helping this get the Green New Deal legislation, chief of staff to Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. He was there to meet Sam Ricketts, the climate director for Washington Governor Jay Inslee. Mm -hmm. He says, he says, quote, the interesting thing about the New Deal is it wasn't originally a climate thing at all. Ricketts, Ricketts greeted this start of the notion with an attentive poker face. Chakrabarty then keeps going, says, quote, do you guys think of it as a climate thing? He continues, because we really think of it as a how do you change the entire economy thing? So that's what I worry about. Scientifically, the the that that piece of legislation, you can't even do what it's aiming for. Like, you, you're not going to be able, it, uh, so much of the science says, dude, we can't limit what we want to do. Like, you can't just say no to nuclear and other forms of energy. Like, even if there are, we, we, we have to do it in an unlimited way if we're really going to treat this seriously. And and again, this is going to sound like a, a right-wing talking point, but I look at that piece of legislation as a Trojan horse. I really do, because when when you see that really quickly, and then, sorry, Avi, I really will let you have the floor after this. When you see that, where is it, um, that some of the largest environmental groups don't sign on to that piece of legislation like the Environmental Defense Fund, the Natural Resources Defense Council, and the Sierra Club. Like the New Republic reported that there were others that were specifically concerned about the restrictive language. That's what I think voters should focus on more is not like how does a candidate sound on like, you know, or even in this, like what's actually going to be the effect and the results of a policy that is being pushed or promoted. Okay, I have I have a question for you. First of all, I, before I ask my question, I want to say nothing that you sound like this sounds like a Republican talking point. I think that most of what you put forward um, has been sensible and has been well developed as ideas. So I'm not, you know, um, so I, I don't interpret it that way at all. The second thing I want, uh, the thing I wanted to ask you, you see this as a Trojan horse to what? I'm not exactly clear on this. I just want to get an idea. For, for people that want to have more, we'll say, of like a government involvement with all levels when it comes to redistributing or kind of like, you know, again, to, to, that's why I said to sound like a right, to kind of, instead of it, us being like a mixed economy, 
to becoming more of like a public, you know, like a very government hands-on, like, you know, we're going to do a federal jobs guarantee. We're going to do Medicare for all do, you know, uh, erasing college. And that all is getting like packaged in. And it's like, wait, I thought this was about the environment. Oh, we're, we're so on. Okay. So now I see what you're saying. And I actually agree with you a hundred percent. Um, I read this article last night, uh, last year, written by a Danish MP. So she was in Danish parliament and she was talking about the world if we beat climate change. And she described a world which had, um, where everything was socialist, where nobody ate meat. I mean, I personally don't eat meat myself, but she was describing a world where all sorts of values were promoted that were not specifically related to, that were related to saving the climate, but like you, you got a feeling reading what she was saying that it was about more than the climate for her. And I have a problem with that. I do. Um, I'm somebody, by the way, who, unlike you, believes that the government should intervene more in the economy. Um, you know, I like Sweden in terms of economically um, or even the UK where there's universal health care a lot more than I like the way that the US does things. But that does not mean that I think that we should we should use climate change to smuggle in all sorts of ideas about social justice. I think that mm -hmm. in a perfect world, these ideas would be looked at independently. You understand what I'm saying? And I understand yeah. the fear. I understand the fear behind that. My response to that is we may, I, and it's ugly. Like uh, that, that's my real problem with it is I don't like the triumphalism where we go up to people and tell them that, we that can't eat hamburgers anymore. Like to me, if we if it has to come to that, it's going to be a tragedy because I believe in personal autonomy and I believe in free markets. Even when it comes to things, I don't think I don't think people in the world should be eating meat. I say that I don't eat meat um, and I barely eat cheese and eggs. And when I do, I feel like a hypocrite. But I don't think that the way to stop people from doing things, which I think are not ideal or are wrong, is to go up to individuals and take it away from them. We have to have discussions with people and convince them that what that 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 our values are right. That being said, having given that long introductory caveat, um I have a tendency um I have a tendency to to feel that we're gonna have to make sacrifices. I, I'm sorry to tell you, but the world the world is in jeopardy. I don't think it's an alarmist statement. I think that saying that the world is in jeopardy of, of, of climate change is rather like saying that the Titanic was in jeopardy of icebergs when it was sailing through the North Atlantic. It's simply objective. Um, sacrifices on the personal level will have to be made. It's an ugly thing to say, but people, you're not going to, I'm sorry, but your 2,100 H1 is going to have to go for this to happen. It's an ugly thing to say, but there's going to be a point at which the cost of climate change, when cities start slipping underwater, when wildfires get worse and worse, as they are and as they have been, and as science tells us that they will be, there will be a point at which we have to tell people, listen, your right to a Hummer H1 is not more important than the future of the planet. And it's an ugly thing for libertarians to hear, but it's perhaps a necessary thing to say. Um, you know, that's you know that that's the way I look at things um, when it comes to the climate. With regard to what you said about the Green New Deal, 
and implementation. And and I and I say that I say everything I just said as somebody who doesn't believe in hiding ugly truth from people. I, you know, the uh, climate change is an issue which, in my opinion, uh, uh, promises, and it's not COVID where there's going to be a vaccine. You don't remelt the ice. It takes thousands of years for temperatures to return to where they were, um, unless we figure out some way, form of geoengineering, which allows us to decide when it rains and snows and 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 block out part of the sun or I don't know what. It's an, a scary time. It's a time which scares me, not because I enjoy being scared, but because what I'm seeing around me is frightening. You know, and, and when I look at climate change and I look at COVID, I think to myself, COVID is the appetizer. The climate crisis is a main course. And we're not going to like the way it tastes. That was pretty bad. Okay. Second of all, <laughs> that, was, that was actually. I liked it. There you um, go. That's the clip now, from today's conversation. <laughs> now, with regard to the Green New Deal, which I am by no means an expert on, and you sound like you know loads more about it than me. Um, I want what, what I really want to, there's always a gap between rhetoric and implementation. You know, when when politicians get up and say, oh, zero emissions by 2035, what they really mean is like 30% emissions by 2040. Um, what I want to see happen is not the New Deal or the Green New Deal per se. What I want to see happen is young Republicans, young people on the right getting up and getting part of being part of a debate which says climate change is real. Let's talk about how to deal with it and preserve the things that we care about. I think this gets very much into what um, Adar is saying, uh, Adar is constantly saying about how we need to talk about things. The, the, the majority, a growing number of young Republicans are starting to see that climate change is an issue. And these are people who care about free markets and have the don't tread on me mentality that you have. Let them join the conversation. I want to, nothing would make me happier than to see a million young Republicans saying, Let's stop climate change in a way that preserves free markets. Let's have that conversation. I want to see that happening. I'm not here to argue the Green New Deal is a great idea or that uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez should be the deciding voice of American democracy. What I am, what I do want to say is, and, and I think this ties into what all three of us believe is, let's have honest conversations which take into account what science tells us time and time again, and what our eyes and ears tell us time and time again is the obvious reality of a planet which is threatening to become uninhabitable. Let's try to balance that with our political values, with our social values, with our economic values. It won't be perfect, but let's meet in the middle instead of having one party which tells me that ice, the ice isn't melting when everybody sees that it is. Uh Great. Thank you, Avi. Look, we're, we're getting on two hours, so uh, we're going to go fi final statements and then we're going to head to the after party in Discord. Um, so, Garrett, in your final statement, you could include some kind of um, a response if, if you feel you want to, or you could just move to. To, you know, whatever final words you, you want to give and then Avi will wrap it up. Yeah, I just got a closing remarks. I'm really glad that we had the opportunity to do this. I think it's super important. I, I wish 
I mean, what we just did right there, like, I'm not going to try to toot our own horns. Don't you wish this is how it went in reality, you know, like when it comes to the average voter or like to like the uh, political candidates? Like, I wish this is how things went. I'm really glad that we could come on and, and discuss this. And I have to admit, I knew that these topics, as someone who is a Trump supporter, this these are the hardest ones. Uh, I wish we could have got more into um like the policy, you know, uh, with um, when it comes to the COVID response, that's okay. I can still finish saying I think the Trump administration's done more than a lot of people think. We didn't even touch on all the economic responses that he did that were very positive. Uh, but again, that's something that I think we'll just disagree on. And uh, and I knew with climate change, that's not. It's it's more like I have to try to poke holes at a, what a Biden administration would do. I can't I can't sit here and act like, oh yeah, no, Trump's like totally right on what he says, or like, oh, the Trump administration is gonna like overnight just start doing like carbon pricing or like capturing. You know, it's just I'm I'm aware of that. But uh, yeah, I really enjoyed this debate, and I'm glad that we could even with topics that I knew that were difficult, still be able to just have like a really good conversation about. So thanks, Avi. Thanks for thank you so much. Amen, brother. Um, in closing, I think I've said more than enough over the past two hours about my policy positions and my beliefs. I just wanted to tell you guys how humbled I was to have such a great conversation with you. Um, Garrett, you're a great dude. Um, anytime, a lot of the times with my friends, when I, when we, we say, oh, we're going to have a civilized conversation about politics, like two minutes later, somebody's throwing like a frying pan at somebody's head. Not literally, but you know what I mean. Um, so it's been a great conversation. You're a great guy. Um, Adar, I've seen your uh, this this podcast around a lot. I'm really honored to have been given a chance to participate in it. It was just a really humbling experience to talk to you guys, to hear more about what you think. And incredibly encouraging for me, Garrett, to see that on the issues of climate change, I don't think that we're really that far apart. Um, and I would really love to just talk more um, to either of you, to both of you, um, about what we agree or disagree on and, you know, important issues and, and the, the real questions that are facing the world right now. Thank you, brother. All right. Um, so look, I, I, I do want to say, you know, Garrett, you mentioned that you have some, uh, some other points you wanted to make. So in, in our Discord server, there's a channel just for Trump Biden. So you could leave any remarks there just to follow up. Um, and, you know, I, I want to thank you both for, for doing an excellent job. I mean, both of you were able to acknowledge your areas of agreement constantly. You're able to acknowledge where you thought your side w wasn't doing a good job. And I think that is more intellectual honesty and understanding than what we're used to seeing. And I think the viewers agree because this video at, at this point does not have a single down down vote, which is pretty amazing for such a controversial topic. So I respect to both of you. It's been I, I think um, Albus Dumbledore said it best when he said it's easier to stand up to your friends than to your enemies. And a lot of the time in politics, I find that when people are looking at others through telescopes, what they really need is mirrors to look at themselves. Um, and so I'm trying to be introspective and humble um, while also having very vocal and strong opinions. And I, you know, um, and in talking to Garrett and to you, Adar, I found a lot to emulate. So thank you guys once again. Thank you guys. It's been great. See, see you in the Discord. Thank you very much. Awesome. All right.